You can, you can rally people and eat hot dogs, and we'll pay for the hot dogs. Uh, so good to be back with you guys. We are, uh, Hillary and I had a great time in Washington. You know, maybe you don't know, but Hillary has like 100 Croatian mafia relatives up in Gig Harbor, Washington. And so we go up there and we're just inundated by Croatian family, but it's awesome. And, uh, and, and we were able to, the little family has a house there. We were able to stay and rest and uh, recharge and get excited for this fall, which is going to be awesome. This fall is going to be great. But I also heard that uh, God was doing great things here, that our team of, you know, staff, part-time staff, volunteers, just not only like held it down, but like took us forward. And uh, love, love to hear that. Did you know that uh, only Jairus and I, the worship leader, if you're new, uh, are on full-time salary staff? We're the only two full-time staff for this church of, you know, over 500 and, and growing. And we have several part-time people. And then the rest of the things that happen, happen because of you. We are a volunteer organization. We are dependent on you. We are dependent on people like you to step up and serve. We've got people serving in the back right now. We've got Jonathan, Katie, Isaac back there doing their thing. We've got, you know, people at the doors. We have people that got here at 6 a.m. and set up and do that faithfully. We have people that are staying after to tear down and do that faithfully. We have people that are watching over kids if you have them and do that faithfully. We are a volunteer organization, and not just on Sundays, but all during the week. It's who we are and what we do. We are impacting this community, and it's you who are doing it. And we miss you when we're not here, and I'm so excited to be back and to be, uh, and, and to be rolling and doing this. I also heard that last week when, uh, when the crazy Kenyan was here talking, that there were 200, no, no, not, not 200, but 20, there were over 20 people who stood up and made first-time commitments to follow Jesus. So we, we celebrate that. There, there have been a lot, just in the year that I've been here, there have been a lot of people that have taken that step of faith. So we're excited for you if you are one of those. If you are one of those, make sure you do tear off that little card and your bulletin and bring it to us because we want to know you. There are people here that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and there are people that are just starting or just exploring. And the people that have been doing it longer like to come alongside and mentor and get to know you who are, do, who are newer to it. And so let us engage with you and make, help you make connections and kind of grow in your in your journey and your walk and everything like that. Um, we are also continuing this morning this series on the Bible. I'm going to cross over here, Jonathan, so make sure that I don't... I don't... We're continuing this series on the Bible, and uh, we have been working through Scripture, the Old Testament, great stories, uh, just stories that are heroic, that Hollywood makes movies about, you know, and now we've gotten to the life of Jesus. In the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about this Jesus and his, his un- unthinkable, unbelievable, undeniable impact that he's had on the world, how God put skin on, came down to earth, lived among us, did crazy things, did miraculous things. We've talked about the miracles. We've talked about the life change. And today we're going to talk about something else. We're going to talk about the cross and the ultimate sacrifice that he made and the reason why he came to this earth in the first place. But I want you to, uh, to consider something as we get started. I want you to consider this idea of being a consumer versus being a follower. Now, a consumer, you know that in our culture, in our American culture, it's not very difficult to get your mind around what a consumer is, right? Consumers 
consume. Consumers take, consumers buy. Consumers are looking to make their lives more comfortable. They're looking to get the next big thing. They're looking to make the next big step. They're looking to push and promote and grow. And and we consume and we consume. We consume food. We consume stuff. We consume status. We consume all these different things. And we know that and we get that. And it's not all bad. There's something in us that God kind of wired us that we would want and we would grow and we would push the envelope. But... In fact, Jesus himself played into this, understood this this way that we are. And when he came, he actually invited people and disciples to follow him by playing to their consumeristic tendencies. You remember when he said to the disciples, maybe if you're here, you you, you haven't heard this before, you just kind of tune in, I'm going to give you a little... He said, hey, come and follow me. And when he said to some fishermen, come and follow me, he did it in a way that was pretty miraculous. He had them throw their fish, throw their net on the other side of the boat. And they hadn't caught anything all night. They threw their net on the other side of the boat. And now they can't even, they can't even drag all the fish that they caught to shore. He gave them what they were looking for. And then he calls people and he says, hey, hey, hey fishermen, I will, I will make you not fishers of fish, but fishers of men. I will give you purpose. I will give you confidence. I will give you, I will give you what you're, I know that you're a consumeristic type person. So I'm going to get you with that. I'm going to, I'm going to satisfy that. I'm, I'm in, you're in with me. You will have what you need and more. But then on this journey with his disciples, with people who follow him, there's, there's these, these, these consumer desires and things are met. And then he'd ask them to take a step further. Have you heard of churches that are, that are blasted or criticized for being like too self-help or too like personal empowerment and stuff like that? You can go wrong in that direction. But there's a real thing to that too. And the reality is that Jesus wired, God wired this universe in such a way that if you follow his principles, if you do what he says, turns out your life is better. If you honor the way that he's wired relationships and sex and food and communication and, and, and reaping what you sow and stuff like that, it will go better for you. His principles, his truths in his word do, in fact, make your life better. But he doesn't stop there. And he doesn't let us stop there. The more we come along, the more we follow, the more he invites us to shift from being just a consumer of his goodness to being a follower. And being a follower costs something. And the longer you are in this relationship with Jesus, the more you realize, as good as it is, and it keeps getting better, but for it to keep getting better, you have to be willing to pay some kind of a cost. And there will be a time, if there already has been, or there will be a time in your life, when he will ask you, he will invite you to pay some kind of cost to take your next level in understanding the fullness of life that he has for you. And today we're going to talk about why, why that is the case. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to, chapter, to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. Jesus has been living and walking and doing the miraculous things that he did. And the people, the political people and the religious leaders, they don't like it. It's inconvenient for them. He's gotten so popular and so out of control in their minds that they must do something about it. And so you know the story, even if you've never been in church before, you know that Jesus hung on a cross. And so that's what we have here. They have taken him, arrested him, beaten him within an inch of his life, and now they have put him on a cross. 
And that's where we pick up the story in verse 37. It says, the soldiers nailed Jesus to a cross. And they gambled to see who would get his clothes. Okay? They gambled to see who could sell his gear on eBay. I'm going to turn this for profit. This guy's famous. This guy, everybody knows about him. He's created a big stir. Certainly, we could get something for this online. Certainly, we can turn this into profit. So they're fighting. They're gambling. They're trying to figure out who's going to get to to take this guy's stuff and sell it. Now, have you ever been to a sporting event and the... uh, like the professional athlete that just wins the game, takes off his jersey or headband and like throws it in the crowd. Have you? Like, okay. So, so it happens, right? And, and you see it, and I've been at one of those. And the guy takes off his jersey, and it's all sweaty. And his headband is just soaked and saturated. And he tosses it in the crowd. And what do I do? I duck and dodge and move because I don't want that sweaty thing hitting me. You're a great athlete and all, but I don't need your perspiration on me. Who do you think you are in the first place? If I want your jersey, I will go buy your jersey. I don't want that sweaty mess. I, you know, that's craziness. But imagine even going further. Imagine these these soldiers who have just beaten Jesus senseless. And he's been in this like same toga thing for days. And now it's got blood all over it because they have whipped him within an inch of his life with this leather thing called the cat of nine tails that they held, and it's got nine strips of leather on it. And at the end, and all over this, these strips of leather, are like the sharpest things that they had at their disposal. Think like the sharpest metals, the sharpest glass, the sharpest of thorns. And they're just whipping him and tearing his skin off. There's blood everywhere. And yet these guys, because Jesus is so popular, so influential, there's never been anyone in history even close to as popular as Jesus. We were, someone was talking in the back earlier this morning about seeing John Mayer somewhere, and they were just like, oh my gosh, it's John Mayer, and just freaking out. He had like a little posse with him of about four people. Try Jesus traveling with 4,000, just trying to get a glimpse of what he might do next, just trying to hear the next thing that he might say that was so revolutionary. That was the popularity of this Jesus. And so the soldiers are like, I'll take his bloody clothes. I'll, I'll, I'll take, I, I can get some money for this. Let's do this. And then verse 16, they sat down to guard him. He's on a cross, but they're guarding him just in case. Verse 37, above his head, they put a sign that told why he was nailed there. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The soldiers also nailed two criminals on crosses on the right of Jesus and, on, and the other on his left. So you got to understand, the cross was the most brutal, the most destructive, the most painful way that the Romans had, had, had come up with yet to kill somebody. And it wasn't meant just to kill somebody. It was meant to torture them and to humiliate them, to crush their spirit as it crushed their body. It was meant to put on display. You hung someone on a cross and you were literally stretching their shoulders out to dislocate them and you were nailing through their wrists to those sides and you were nailing through their ankles and they would just hang there and they would press off the nail in their feet to try to get some kind of a little bit of breath. And they would often, usually they would suffocate if they didn't bleed out. It was the most brutal way. So what they're saying is we don't just want to kill you. We want to crush you. And we want to do it on display so everybody sees, don't do what he did. And they didn't just kill Jesus. 
It's interesting because this, this popular magnetic, the, the, the whole area is just a buzz about this Jesus. And it would have been enough. It would have been enough of a spectacle just to kill him. But for some reason, there were two other guys that were just brutal criminals. You didn't kill just like regular thieves. These guys were brutal killers, thieves, whatever kind of criminals. And they posted them both on either side of Jesus. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I'm allowing myself to be hung here, killed, humiliated, stripped naked, and embarrassed suffering unspeakable pain with these guys. I'm with these guys. As if he's saying, I am just like these terrible hardened criminal, criminals. The Jesus who hadn't even broken any laws, he hadn't even sinned. He was being hung there because he was so well-liked, respected, people followed him, and yet he challenged the social norms of the day, and people were intimidated, confused, scared, and just didn't know what to do with him. That's why he was killed. And yet he, said he allowed himself to hang there with the worst of the worst. That reminds me of a few years later when the Apostle Paul shows up on the scene and he's talking to a crowd like this, wanting to communicate with people like you, And he says in 1 Timothy, for that reason I was shown mercy. God had mercy on me. The worst of sinners. That Christ Jesus might might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul was the most famous, revered, kind of like religious leader of that time. And something happened, something clicked for him when he reflected back on what Jesus did on the cross. And he said, like Jesus, willing to hang with the worst, so am I the worst of sinners. I'm in that number too. Have you wondered, if you've been coming a little while, why I repeatedly bring up the fact that I've been divorced, that I wrecked a marriage in my 20s, that I have still struggles and and do dumb stuff all the time and and I have different you know, areas of weakness, and I talk about Hillary and our marriage and things like that. that I, it's because I have figured out a painful way that I belong right there too. That I belong there. That Jesus hung there and died in place of me. And I want you to know that. And I want you to know that I'm just like you. That there's nothing, there's nothing any of you have done that is worse than me. And there's nothing anyone outside of here has done that is worse than you. That we fall into that same camp. And until you realize that, you will judge other people for the things that they do and you will think that you somehow are different. Like you're like the religious leaders judging Jesus. Until you realize that I belong there, that he hung and died for me and for you. And so Jesus allowed himself to hang there and to be crucified with the worst of sinners. Back to Matthew. Verse 39 says, The people passed by. They said terrible things about Jesus. They shook their heads and they shouted, So you're the one who claimed that you could tear down the temple and build it again in three days. They actually misquoted him. Because he had said that you would tear, that you would tear down the temple. He had said, You people will tear down the temple. And I, Jesus... We'll build it again 
raise it again in three days. And he was not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem that took 46 years to construct. He was talking about himself. He knew that that was coming. And so these passerbyers, they know their Jesus trivia. And so they see, they see this playing out and they're like, hey, you hanging there, didn't you say you were going to tear down the temple? Didn't you say that you were going to do these crazy things and now you're there hanging? And then they go on. It says, if you are God's son, save yourself and come down from that cross. If you're playing along and have your notes and a pen in front of you, circle those words, save yourself. Save yourself. You supposedly have done all kinds of miraculous things for other people. Save yourself. You're supposedly here to do good, and you're supposedly the son of God. Save yourself then. Save yourself if you can. How come you're not saving yourself? You supposedly are here to save others. Save yourself. And ignorantly, without even realizing it, they are shedding light on the secret of the universe of why God came in flesh and blood and why he would hang there and why he would die. Let's talk for a second about this idea of saving yourself. Let me take you back a few years. How many of you have seen Titanic? Leo, as a, as a young boy, standing on the bow, is it the bow, the front of the boat, and saying, you know, I'm the king of the world, right? And then just a short time later, the boat is sinking. It was supposed to be this indestructible ship, right? And the richest of the rich were on there, and it was this big voyage and this whole big thing. And now all of a sudden, what was supposed to be indestructible is now sinking to the bottom of the ocean and people are panicking. How many times have you been in an experience like that where, where this, this life, this thing that was supposed to be indestructible, it was supposed to be your hope, it was supposed to be your way, and now all of a sudden it's sinking? So what happens when the ship is sinking and the richest of the rich that are there uh, need to get off this sinking ship and yet there's not enough little lifeboats to save everybody, not even enough to save the richest of the rich that are on top? Remember the movie? They're starting to put these things down. They're like, uh, doing the math, minus carry the, and we don't have enough boats. And so what do they do? They put the richest of the rich on first, and they put who on the, the, the lifeboats first? The women and the children. And so we see the villain, who ends up being the villain in this, in this movie, who was supposed to marry the girl, and then Leo is stepping in, and you know all that drama. We see him paying off the guards trying to get on these little lifeboats. We see him trying to do what? Save himself. And when you see him sneaking onto this lifeboat with nothing but women and little kids, and there are still women and children waiting to get on the boat, what happens in you? You, you get angry, right? What do, you, what, do, what do you see in that? You see cowardice? You see, you see selfishness? It just looks pathetic, right? Because he is saving himself. How do you save yourself? What does it look like for you to save yourself, to serve yourself at the expense of others? What does that look like? For the people around Jesus, it was pretty clear. The, the disciples, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, they scattered when these Roman soldiers came and arrested Jesus, they bounced, they bolted, they wanted nothing to do with that. This is not going well. We were on this trajectory, and now the guy's being arrested. This could be my head, I'm out. And so his disciples all fleed to save 
their physical lives and what reputation they might have had. The religious leaders, they were saving themselves because they needed to save face in the image, in their public image of the people because Jesus was calling into question their hypocrisy, their ways of doing, right? They knew all the right stuff in their head, but they were hypocrites. They didn't really care for people. They liked being in charge. They liked being religious leaders. They liked being seen as important. And Jesus was calling that into question. So they wanted him dead. They wanted to save their social status. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of that area at the time. And when Jesus was brought before him, he wanted to save himself. He didn't know really what to do about this situation. And his wife had told him, hey, don't, don't mess with this guy. This, this is, there's something weird about this. And so in a political power play, he moved Jesus over and had him go to Herod Antipas, who was like a mayor in, a, in the region nearby where Jesus had been doing most of his work. Now, Herod and Pilate did not get along. They were not on good terms. So this was a politically savvy move. He was going to send Jesus over there. Hey, hey, he's been doing his miracles and stuff in your town. I'll let you make the decision. But Herod, trying to return the political favor, thinking that they, maybe they could get on good terms, toyed around with Jesus and then sent him back. Up until that day, those two men hated each other. After that day, they had some kind of a, an alliance formed. That relationship was restored, and it was a political move. They acted to save themselves at the expense of the God of the universe who had done nothing wrong. And then you got the crowd. you got the crowd that's shouting. How are they saving themselves? By just going along. By just getting caught up in the moment by the current of the culture, by what's happening, by groupthink, by the mob mentality, and they just go along with it. The religious leaders are saving social status. The disciples are saving their physical and emotional lives. Pilate and Herod are looking for political gain, and the group, the crowd, is just going along with the mob mentality. But when you and I save our lives, we have similar motivations, don't we? When we act in a self-saving, a self-serving way, we have similar things that drive us. We want to go with the popular decision instead of the right decision. We go along with the general consensus instead of rocking the boat. We want to go with the easy way out instead of ruffling feathers and doing what our conviction suggests that we do. We want to store up stuff for ourselves, save ourselves to have future wealth or status or whatever we're trying to gain for the future instead of living an attitude of open hands and saying, all I have is God's. He provides for me anyway. We want to maintain our sense of control, that our life is in order and we like it this way and we want to save that sense that we have that, that things are under control. And we want to preserve our sense of significance and social status. We're just like Herod and Pilate operating for what will be politically beneficial. We're just like the disciples who scatter when it looks like it's nasty. Even maybe to the point where Peter denied Jesus three times when questioned. Questioned by a 12-year-old girl. Some of you have 12-year-old girls. You can imagine the moment. It's just like, um, don't like I know you from somewhere. And Peter panics. He can't handle it in this moment. And he's just like, oh, uh, no, no, what are, you, what are you crazy? You're just a little girl. And then a couple other people are like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I saw, no, 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 no. The guy who said, I would die for you, I would do anything for you, Jesus, 
is just laid out by this 12-year-old girl because he's trying to save what he has left. Nervous about what people will think, how he will be treated, and we do the same things. But lucky for us, Jesus did not save himself. The cross was something that he embraced. Now, I imagine the disciples thinking back later, maybe even Pilate's wife, Maybe even the people in the crowd, they're thinking back later after some time has passed and Jesus has done what Jesus has done. And they're thinking, remember, remember some of those things that Jesus did and said? I wonder if, I wonder if that, I, that's what he was talking. I wonder if they remember what he said in the garden when Jesus says in Matthew 26, he, that he walked a little way and he knelt with his face to the ground and he prayed. And then he cries out to his father. He says, Father, If it is possible, don't make me suffer this way. If it is possible, don't make me go through that torture. But not but do what you want, not what I want. And that was the attitude that Jesus lived with. Do what you want, God, not what I want. That was the way they would remember disciples, hey, that's actually how he lived his whole life. He listened to that whisper within. He looked for those signals out here and he continued to submit his life himself to this leading of his father, to the master's plan. He followed that. He said his his attitude, his life, his very way was not what I want, but what you want. And I imagine the disciples recalling one of Jesus' most shocking lessons that he had given to them months before, that they, it did not click until this moment. He said this before. He said, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. To which at the time Jesus said it, they were like, I got nothing. I don't, I don't know. Um, deny ourselves, take up, our, take up our cross. What does he mean? Take up a torture device and like walk around with it? The word word deny is very simple. It just means to resist our natural inclination to save ourselves, to serve ourselves, and to join with Jesus in this willingness to suffer and to stay on that cross and say, you know what, I will participate in this ongoing work that he is doing in the world. I will participate with this ongoing sacrifice of self. I will follow. I I will be willing to, to pay a cost for the sake of following Jesus. And it doesn't look like the guy down on Main Street or on the boardwalk who like actually carries a heavy cross. He's still just doing it as a spectacle. He still doesn't understand that it's about him not being elevated and instead choosing what is not what self wants. What does it look like to follow, to deny? Instead of just doing what others do, and what will benefit you, maybe you ask the question, is this what I'm supposed to deny myself? Is this what I'm supposed to turn down an opportunity because it's, it's in conflict with my values? Is this what I'm supposed to draw a line in a relationship because I no longer hear God's voice, I just hear this guy's voice? Is this what I'm supposed to give away? Is this the amount you want me to give away? Is this the time that you want me to give away so that my own self-centeredness and greed doesn't have a grip on my soul? And then Jesus goes on in that same lesson. Verse 25, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And here's what he's saying. Everyone's going to die in the end. I hope that's not like a buzzkill. You know you're going to die, right? Everyone who spends their whole life trying to save and to store and to build and promote your own stuff, your own status, your own social status and whatever else, you're going to lose it. It's inevitable. The famous saying that people, you know, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul pulling behind it. You can't take anything with you. That goes with, that goes with reputation, image, and all that kind of stuff. You can leave a legacy, but I promise it's not going to be about what you accumulate. You will die. We will die. Everyone will die. And if we spend our whole life trying to just save and gain and get more and consume and consume and consume, you will be disappointed in the end. It will seem silly in the end. Everybody dies of something, but not many live for something. And his promise and his invitation is, if you just live for yourself, you'll regret it in the end. But if you deny yourself, if you participate with me, if you're willing to pay a cost, your life will be more full and more purposeful and meaningful than you can ever imagine. And then Jesus rattles us with this life-shaping perspective. He finishes that little lesson by saying in verse 26, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, your soul is greater than all things. Your soul is greater than all things. Why would you spend your life trying to accumulate and gain and save yourself and self-serve if it's harmful to your soul? If you get to the end and you're like, dang, it turns out this was this whole empty pursuit. Your soul is more valuable than all other things. I was thinking about this and a couple of practical things jumped out at me. One was a couple of years ago when Hillary and I were living in Washington. I was feeling restless. I was feeling like, like it was maybe time for a change. I was doing some kind of consulting work and some coaching things and just kind of piecing it together and feeling like, God, there's got to be something more substantial that you have for me. I was trying to figure out what that is. Do, we need to, do I need to commute to Seattle? Do I need to do something else? And Hillary was praying with some girlfriends, and she came to me one morning, and she said, hey, I, I, just, I just want you to know that even though we live here in Gig Harbor with all my Croatian mafia relatives, <laughs> where we can have dinner at some family member's house every night if we want, where everyone knows Hillary's name, where she had the house of her dreams, that it's highly unlikely we'll ever be able to afford in Huntington Beach, by the way, even though she had that, she says, I feel like God wants me to tell you that if we should move, I'm willing to move. And that is what led us to be down here, not knowing what we were coming for. God just arranged and lined everything up, and we're doing what we are today. And then I heard recently, just this past week, I was reminded about Martin Luther King Jr., who was educated in the Northeast, got his PhD up there, and then was invited to join the faculty of a couple of different universities where he could have taught about social justice. He could have taught about 
you know, civil rights and changes that needed to happen in America. And he could have written books and essays and really done some great things in academia. And he felt God saying, nope, I want you to go back down to the southeast. And as you know, Martin Luther King Jr. ended up giving his life in his following of Jesus in this way, in this pursuit. So for you, it'll be somewhere in that spectrum. You will benefit, you already are, you know that as you live by Jesus' principles, if you live by the ways that he has wired this world, that your life will go better. And yet he will still invite you to more. But the more will cost. The more is an invitation to lay down your own self-serving ways and to trust his sacrificial way. But it's a better way. It's the way for your soul. Because at the end of the day, what would you give in exchange for your soul? At the end of the day, those, those pursuits of self-serving, self-saving, they don't lead anywhere good. That's not what, that's not what you want. His invitation is to participate with his ongoing sacrificial love and life in the world around us. That we get to play a role, that we get to be a part of that. That his salvation is free and there's nothing that you can do to earn it. And yet to follow him, there's a cost. And for you right now, it's something. There's a whisper, there's a pull, there's or there's just an anticipation that something is coming and it's going to be okay. Most people don't live for anything of value. They just pursue selfish things. We're all going to die of something. Choose to live for something. I just want to take one minute after I pray for you just to sit and think and reflect. What is it that God would be saying to you that he's inviting you to lay down? What is it that you cling to that he wants you to loosen your grip of? There's nothing you can do to earn or to merit his forgiveness that was bought on that cross. And yet the cross is no longer for you, just something that hangs on your neck. It's something that reminds you that there's a continual laying down and denying of our own self-serving, self-saving tendencies for the sake of the bigger story that he invites you into every day. God, I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would speak to us now. And that you would give us the strength and the willingness to surrender and submit as you have so graciously surrendered everything and paid the ultimate cost for our sake. In Jesus' name.